Section 43 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 65 The Congress of Berlin, Part 1. Lord Beaconsfield went down to the county which he had represented so long and made a farewell speech at Aylesbury. This occasion must for him have been one to call up genuine emotion. The speech was in many parts worthy of the occasion. Lord Beaconsfield set forth his reasons for consenting to quit that splendid arena on which he had so long played a brilliant part. Years were telling on him, he explained in some sentences full of feeling and of good taste. He was no longer as young as when forty-three years before he addressed the electors of Buckinghamshire in that same place. He said that his colleagues had been more careful of his feelings than Gilles Blas was of those of the Archbishop of Granada, but he added that he was less self-complacent than the Archbishop. He was willing, therefore, to retire from the field in good time and to be content to serve his country in the more quiet ways of the House of Lords. Unfortunately, Lord Beaconsfield soon went on to make a fierce attack on his political opponents. He marred the effect of his speech artistically as well as politically, by the overwrought and acrimonious language in which he allowed himself to indulge. Speaking of the sublime sentiments which had been evoked by the crimes done in Bulgaria, he pointed to the danger of designing politicians taking advantage of them for their own sinister ends, and described such conduct as worse than any of those Bulgarian atrocities which now occupy attention. Nothing could be in worst taste. It was impossible to doubt that Lord Beaconsfield's picture of the designing politicians was meant to be understood as a picture of Mr. Gladstone and those who supported him. The controversy, bitter enough before, became still more bitter now. Lord Beaconsfield and Mr. Gladstone were thrown into as sharp an antagonism as that of two gladiators in a Roman arena, or two duelists standing at twelve paces from each other. They had been lifelong opponents, this now seemed like a duel to the death. The policy each represented may be described in a few very summary words. Lord Beaconsfield was for maintaining Turkey at all risks as a barrier against Russia. Mr. Gladstone was for renouncing all responsibility for Turkey and taking the consequences. Men who prided themselves on being practical politicians, above all things, went naturally with Lord Beaconsfield. Men who held that sound politics cannot exist without sound morals went with Mr. Gladstone. It is our business, the one set of men said, to secure the interests of England. If Turkey is useful to us as a barrier against Russia, we are bound to keep her in her place for our own sake. Her private character is of no account to us. The other men argued that it was the duty of England to release herself from all responsibility for the crimes of Turkey and to refuse to stand in the way of the developing freedom of the Christian populations. The public conscience of England, said the one, the interests of England, said the other. Be just and fear not, Mr. Gladstone urged. No sentiment, rejoined Lord Beaconsfield. 
the crimes of turkey was the cry of one party the ambition of russia made the alarm note of the other each statesman made a mistake and each mistake was characteristic of the man lord beaconsfield misunderstood the condition of public feeling and the gravity of the case when he thought he could get rid of the bulgarian events by a laugh and a light word mr gladstone afterwards made a mistake when he acted on the assumption that mere sympathy and mere sensibility could long prevail in the english public mind against the traditional distrust of russia when lord beaconsfield and his supporters once had their opportunity of laying that card they had the game absolutely in their hands the common expectation was soon fulfilled at the close of june eighteen seventy six servia and montenegro declared war against turkey servia's struggle was short the servians were assisted by the advice and the active presence of a large number of russian officers who volunteered for the purpose the small servian army however proved no match for the turks at the beginning of september the struggle was over and servia was practically at turkey's feet the hardy montenegrin mountaineers held their own stoutly against the turks everywhere but they could not seriously influence the fortunes of a war england proposed an armistice of not less than a month turkey delayed shuffled paltered at length suggested an armistice till the end of the following march the suggestion was preposterous such a period of suspense would have been ruinous to servia and montenegro intolerable to europe russia then intervened and insisted upon an armistice at once and her demand was acceded to by turkey meanwhile the general feeling in england on both sides was growing stronger and stronger public meetings of mr gladstone's supporters were held all over the country and the english government was urged in the most emphatic manner to bring some strong influence to bear on turkey on the other hand it cannot be doubted that the common suspicion of russia's designs began to grow more keen and wakeful than ever lord derby frankly made known to the emperor alexander what was thought or feared in england and the emperor replied by pledging his sacred word that he had no intention of occupying constantinople and that if he were compelled by events to occupy any part of bulgaria it should be only provisionally and until the safety of the christians should be secured then lord derby proposed that a conference of the european powers should be held at constantinople in order to agree upon some scheme which should provide at once for the proper government of the various provinces and populations subject to turkey and at the same time for the maintenance of the independence and integrity of the ottoman empire the proposal for a conference was accepted by all the great powers and on november eighth eighteen seventy six it was announced that lord salisbury and sir henry elliot the english ambassador at constantinople were to attend as the representatives of england lord beaconsfield was apparently determined to recover the popularity that had been somewhat impaired by his unlucky way of dealing with the massacres of bulgaria his plan now was to go boldly in for the denunciation of russia he sometimes talked of russia as he might of an enemy who had already declared war against england on november ninth eighteen seventy six 
he spoke at a banquet given by the new Lord Mayor at the Guildhall. He glorified the strength and the resources of England. If the struggle comes, he said, there is no country so prepared for war as England. In a righteous cause, England is not the country that will have to inquire whether she can enter upon a second or a third campaign. In a righteous cause, England will commence a fight that will not end until right is done. It was clear that the allusions in the speech were to Russia. The words about the second and third campaign were of unmistakable application. Either by coincidence or otherwise, the Russian emperor delivered a speech the very next day to the nobles of Moscow, which sounded like a direct answer to Lord Beaconfield's challenge. Alexander declared that if he could not succeed in obtaining with the concert of Europe such guarantees as he thought necessary to require of Turkey, he was firmly determined to act independently, and was convinced that the whole of Russia would respond to his summons. The words of Lord Beaconsfield were spoken somewhat late on the evening of Thursday. The emperor addressed the nobles at Moscow the very next day. Still there was ample time for the ordinary telegraphic report of Lord Beaconsfield's speech to be in Alexander's hands, long before the hour at which he had to address the Moscow Assembly. Most persons assumed that the speech of the Russian emperor was undoubtedly an answer to that of the English prime minister. The prospects of a peaceful settlement of the European controversy seemed to have become heavily overclouded. Lord Beaconsfield appeared to be holding the dogs of war by the collar, and only waiting for the convenient moment to let them slip. Every eye was turned upon him. He must have felt that his ambition was fast reaching the very sea-mark of its utmost sail. The decision of peace or war seemed to be absolutely with him. He held the destinies of millions in the hollow of his hand. Every one knew that some of his colleagues, Lord Derby, for example, and Lord Carnarvon, were opposed to any thought of war, and felt almost as strongly for the Christian provinces of Turkey as Mr. Gladstone did. But people shook their heads doubtfully when it was asked whether Lord Derby or Lord Carnarvon, or both combined, could prevail in strength of will against Lord Beaconsfield. The Conference of Constantinople came to nothing. The Turkish statesmen at first attempted to put off the diplomatists of the West by the announcement that the Sultan had granted a constitution to Turkey, that there was to be a parliament at which representatives of all the provinces were to speak up for themselves. There was, in fact, a Turkish parliament called together. The first meeting of the conference was disturbed by the sound of salvos of cannon to celebrate the opening of the first constitutional assembly of Turkey. Of course, the Western statesmen could not be put off by an announcement of this kind. They knew well enough what a Turkish parliament must mean. A parliament is not made by the decree of an autocrat calling a number of men into a room and bidding them debate and divide. To have a parliament, there must be, first of all, something like a free people. Europe had seen a brand-new Egyptian parliament created not long before, and had felt at first a sort of languid curiosity about it, and then after a while learned that it had sunk into the ground or faded away somehow 
without leaving any trace of its constitutional existence. It seems almost superfluous to say that the Turkish Parliament was ordered to disappear very soon after the occasion passed away for trying to deceive the great European powers. Evidently, Turkey had got it into her head that the English government would at the last moment stand by her and would not permit her to be coerced. It is not certain, perhaps cannot be known during this generation, whether there was any truth in the report so freely spread abroad in England that private hints were given to Turkish statesmen by an English diplomatist encouraging them to resist the demands of the great powers and directly or indirectly promising them the support of England. What is certain is that Turkey held out in the end and refused to come to terms, and the conference broke up without having accomplished any good. New attempts at arrangement were made between England, Russia, and others of the great powers, but they fell through. Some unfortunate cause seemed always to prevent any kind of cordial cooperation. Then at last, Russia took the field against Turkey. On October 24, 1877, Russia declared war, and on June 27, a Russian army crossed the Danube and moved toward the Balkans, meeting with comparatively little resistance, while at the same time another Russian force invaded Asia Minor. For a while the Russians seemed likely to carry all before them. Suddenly, however, it appeared that they had made many mistakes in their arrangements. They had made the one great mistake of altogether undervaluing their enemies. Their preparations were hasty and imperfect. The Turks, to do them justice, have never wanted fighting power. They have at all times shown great strength and skill in the mere work of resistance. Long after they had ceased to be anything of a terror to Europe as an aggressive power, they again and again showed tremendous strength and energy in defense. In this instance they were quick to see the mistakes which the Russians had made. They turned upon them unexpectedly and made a gallant and almost desperate resistance. One of their commanders, Osman Pasha, suddenly threw up defensive works at Plevna in Bulgaria, a point the Russians had neglected to secure, and maintained himself there, repulsing the Russians many times with great slaughter. For a time success seemed altogether on the side of the Turks, and many people in England were convinced that the Russian enterprise was already an entire failure, that nothing remained for the armies of the Tsar but retreat, disaster, and disgrace. Cooler observers, however, still assumed that where great superiority of strength and resources existed, military superiority must come in the end. It was evidently only a question of time to enable Russia to make good her mistake and to recover her energies. Thus far the defeats of the Russians had really been inflicted by themselves. Their own blunders had given the battle into the hands of their enemies. Taught by experience, the Tsar confided the direction of the campaign to the hands of General Totleben, the great soldier whose splendid defense of Sebastopol had made the one grand military reputation of the Crimean War. Under his directing skill, the fortunes of the campaign soon turned. Just at the very moment when English critics were proclaiming that the campaign in Asia Minor was over and that Plevna never could be taken, there came a succession of crushing defeats inflicted by the Russians on the Turks 
both in Europe and Asia. Kars was taken by assault on November 18, 1877. Plevna surrendered on December 10th. At the opening of 1878, the Turks were completely prostrate. The road to Constantinople was clear. Before the English public had time to recover their breath and to observe what was taking place, the victorious armies of Russia were almost within sight of the minarets of Stamboul. Meanwhile, the English government were taking momentous action. In the first days of 1878, Sir Henry Elliot, who had been ambassador in Constantinople, was transferred to Vienna, and Mr. Layard, who had been minister at Madrid, was sent to the Turkish capital to represent England there. This step was doubtless meant as an evidence that the English government were determined to give to the Sultan an energetic support, but at the same time to exert their influence more decisively than before in compelling him to listen to reason and to friendly remonstrance. Mr. Laird was known to be a strong believer in Turkey, more Turkish in some respects than the Turks themselves. But he was a man of superabundant energy, of what might be described as boisterous energy. The Ottoman government could not but accept his appointment as a new and stronger proof that the English government were determined to stand their friend, but they ought to have accepted it too as evidence that the English government were determined to use some pressure to make them amenable to reason. Unfortunately, it would appear that the Sultan's government accepted Mr. Laird's appointment in the one sense only, and not in the other. Parliament was called together at least a fortnight before the time usual during recent years. The speech from the throne announced that Her Majesty could not conceal from herself that should the hostilities between Russia and Turkey unfortunately be prolonged, some unexpected occurrence may render it incumbent on me to adopt measures of precaution. This looked ominous to those who wished for peace, and it raised the spirits of the war party. There was a very large and a very noisy war party already in existence. It was particularly strong in London, it embraced some liberals as well as nearly all Tories. It was popular in the music halls and the public houses of London. The class whom Prince Bismarck once called the gentlemen of the pavement were in its favor, at least in the metropolis, almost to a gentleman of the pavement. The men of action got a nickname. They were dubbed the Jingo Party. The term applied as one of ridicule and reproach, was adopted by chivalrous jingoes as a name of pride. The jingoes of London, like the beggars of Flanders, accepted the word of contumely as a title of honor. In order to avoid the possibility of any historical misunderstanding or puzzlement hereafter about the meaning of jingo, such as we have heard of concerning that of Whig and Tory, it is well to explain how the term came into existence. Some tertius of the tap-tub, some kurner of the music-halls had composed a ballad which was sung at one of these caves of harmony every night amid the tumultuous applause of excited patriots the refrain of this war-song contained the spirit-stirring words we don't want to fight but by jingo if we do we've got the ships we've got the men we've got the money too someone whose pulses this lyrical outburst of national pride failed to stir called the party of its enthusiasts the Jingoes. 
the writer of this book is under the impression that the invention of the name belongs to mr george jacob holyoke but he declines to pledge his historical reputation to the fact the name was caught up at once and the party were universally known as the jingoes the famous abjuration of the lady and the vicar of wakefield had proved to be too prophetical she had sworn by the living jingo and now indeed the jingo was alive the government ordered the mediterranean fleet to pass the dardanelles and go up to constantinople the chancellor of the exchequer announced that he would ask for a supplementary estimate of six millions for naval and military purposes lord carnarvon the colonial secretary at once resigned he had been anxious to get out of the ministry before but lord beaconsfield induced him to remain he disapproved now so strongly of the dispatch of the fleet to constantinople and the supplementary vote that he would not any longer defer his resignation lord derby was also anxious to resign and indeed tendered his resignation but he was prevailed upon to withdraw it the fleet meanwhile was ordered back from the dardanelles to bezika bay it had got as far as the opening of the straits when it was recalled the liberal opposition in the house of commons kept on protesting against the various war measures of the government but with little effect the majority of the government kept on increasing the strength of that majority did not lie in mere jingoism there can be no doubt that a great many members of the house of commons voted with lord beaconsfield in the sincere conviction that he was the man whom it was safest to trust and that the protestations of pacific purpose which the government were always making would be most likely to be realized if lord beaconsfield had full power to carry out the policy he thought best while all this agitation in and out of parliament was going on while the opposition was now proposing and now withdrawing amendments while the government were protesting their desire for peace and the champions of the government out of doors were screaming for war while the music halls were cheering for the great name of jingo and monster meetings in hyde park on either side of the question were turning into mere faction fights generally to the defeat and rout of the peace party the news came that the turks utterly broken down had been compelled to sign an armistice and an agreement containing a basis of peace at adrianople then following quickly on the heels of this announcement came a report that the russians notwithstanding the armistice were pushing on towards constantinople with the intention of occupying the turkish capital a cry of alarm and indignation broke out in london one memorable night a sudden report reached the house of commons that the russians were actually in the suburbs of constantinople the house for a time almost entirely lost its head the lobbies the corridors st stephen's hall the great westminster hall itself and palace yard beyond it became filled with wildly excited and tumultuous crowds if the clamour of the streets at that moment had been the voice of england nothing could have prevented a declaration of war against russia happily however it was proved that the rumour of the russian advance was unfounded the fleet was now sent in good earnest through the dardanelles and anchored a few miles below constantinople russia at first protested that if the english fleet passed the straits 
Russian troops ought to occupy the city. Lord Derby was firm, and terms of arrangement were found. English troops were not to be disembarked, and the Russians were not to advance. Russia was still open to negotiation. Probably Russia had no idea of taking on herself the tremendous responsibility of an occupation of Constantinople. She had entered into a treaty with Turkey, the famous Treaty of San Stefano, by which she secured for the populations of the Christian provinces almost complete independence of Turkey, and was to create a great new Bulgarian state with a seaport on the Aegean Sea. The English government refused to recognize this treaty. Lord Derby contended that it involved an entire readjustment of the Treaty of Paris, and that could only be done with the sanction of the great powers assembled in Congress. Lord Beaconsfield openly declared that the Treaty of San Stefano would put the whole southeast of Europe directly under Russian influence. Russia offered to submit the treaty to the perusal, if we may use the expression, of a Congress, but argued that the stipulations which merely concerned Turkey and herself were for Turkey and herself to settle between them. This was obviously an untenable position. It is out of the question to suppose that as long as European policy is conducted on its present principles, the great powers of the West could consent to allow Russia to force on Turkey any terms she might think proper. Turkey, meanwhile, kept feebly moaning that she had been coerced into signing the treaty. The government determined to call out the reserves, to summon a contingent of Indian troops to Europe, to occupy Cyprus, and to make an armed landing on the coast of Syria. All these resolves were not, however, made known at the time. Everyone felt sure that something important was going on, and public expectancy was strained to the full. On March 28, 1878, the House of Lords met as usual. Lord Derby was seen to come in and seat himself, not with the ministers on the front bench to the right of the Lord Chancellor, but below the gangway on the same side. This created some surprise. But for a moment some peers and strangers believed that he had only taken his seat there for the purpose of conversing with a friend who sat behind. The ministers came in one by one and took their places. The business of the house began. Lord Derby remained as before, in a seat below the gangway, and then it was clear to everyone that he was no longer a member of the government. In a few moments he rose and made his explanation. Measures, he said, had been resolved upon of which he could not approve, and he had therefore resigned his office. He did not give any explanation of the measures to which he objected. Lord Beaconsfield spoke a few words of good feeling and good taste after Lord Derby's announcement. He had hoped, he said, that Lord Derby would soon come to occupy the place of Prime Minister which he now held. He dwelt upon their long friendship. Not much was said on either side of what the government was doing. The last hope of the peace party seemed to have vanished when Lord Darby left his office. End of section 43